When cancer enters your life, things get real very quickly. Receiving a cancer diagnosis can make you feel like you've been plucked out of your familiar existence and dropped onto an alien planet. How does one cope with this altered life circumstance when faced with a terrain that is not only unfamiliar, but also deeply frightening and threatening to one's very existence? I'm Diane McDaniel, and this is Real Cancer. In today's episode, I talk with Rory Green, psychotherapist and writing coach, who in 2015 was diagnosed with stage one breast cancer. We explore Rory's strategies for navigating feelings of fear and anxiety, her newfound appreciation for the mundane details of everyday life, and the gratitude practice she has maintained as a result of her diagnosis and treatment. We conclude with a discussion of the counsel that Rory has shared with others who are newly diagnosed with cancer or other life-altering situations. Thank you, Rory, for coming in to talk to me today for the Real Cancer podcast. I wanted to um, have you talk a little bit about your cancer and your treatment, just to give some context for uh, the rest of our discussion. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me to speak today, Diane. It's always lovely to be with you. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. The first thing that I noticed when you asked me that question was that you said your cancer. And one of the things that um, I felt from the moment I was diagnosed is that I didn't want, even though it is such a personal journey, that I never wanted to personalize the diagnosis. So I would, and because I'm a writer, I would always try and distance myself from it with the language that I use. So I, in fact, I often refer to it as the diagnosis rather than my cancer or my tumor. And I noticed there's a lot of ownership around that. From so, from a psychological point of view, I wanted to create a space where I could I could be in the experience, but not necessarily have to. Um, feel like I was absorbing or, or owning the experience entirely. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think we all kind of find ways to uh, create the appropriate distance. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, it's 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 an interesting place to start off because I think what happens, uh, well, for me, what happened when I first uh, was diagnosed, and I think this is a very common, is that you kind of feel like something has happened which you you can't previously relate to so it's almost like being I always compared it to like being plucked out of like my day was going along and it was like I was just plucked out of my existence and dropped onto another planet as it were so from the get-go there's this experience of just not being in connection with what's actually happening Um, I was diagnosed two years ago and I had had a lump in my breast that um, that I had tried to get investigated because I have a family history and I did get investigated but everything that I did had reassured me that it was okay so I'd had a, a mammogram and an ultrasound and a biopsy and all said this is not a lump to be worried about but a few months later I decided to pursue it the lump was still there I eventually had it removed and I was diagnosed um, with stage one with stage one breast cancer, which hadn't spread to the lymph nodes. So that was the kind of, uh, the technical the technical diagnosis. Um, and then the treatment began very soon after. Um, and it wasn't that straightforward, and I think it never is. So even though I knew a lot about breast cancer, my mother was living with breast cancer at the time of my diagnosis. 
um, I learned such a, a huge amount about it in, in the short space of time after I was diagnosed and it was very overwhelming and quite confusing actually, lots of different options in terms of what treatment path to take. Right, so how did you decide what to do? I think it's a difficult balance between feeling a sense of urgency, like I must do something immediately and then trust and trusting that actually you have some time to reflect and I think again everybody's personality and character, is, that's going to make a difference to how you how you react or how you approach it. So I'm somebody that really likes to delve into the details. So I really went with that. I'm going to trust that I have a bit of time to delve into the details and really reflect on all the different options that I've been offered. And then kind of, you know, through a, I suppose, a combination of, of research and intuition, figure out which was the right route for me to take. Um, and it's not an exact science by any means. And it's a really overwhelming and frightening and incredibly confusing time um, for many people. I think that was certainly my experience. Right, absolutely. So um, you had uh, chemotherapy, you had some surgery, you had some radiation. That's right, that was my treatment course and ongoing medication for about a year. I was lucky enough to be able to get a targeted drug therapy and that continued for about a year after diagnosis and Yes, all the other things that you mentioned. So it was quite a lot to navigate in, again, in a short space of time. But Right. Yeah, it is such a, a, a stressful experience to go through. What were some of the, the things that you did to help you get through, um, through treatment? What were some of your coping strategies? Well, I think initially, I'm thinking about from the diagnosis onwards, um, you know, there was the decision about what, I think this is often the first decision is what doctor to use or who to who to be treated by. So for me, that was the kind of first obstacle or hurdle because um, I think from the moment you share, and, and at least in my experience, from the moment I shared my diagnosis, there's a lot of noise around you and people really want to help. And you know, you, we know many people that have been diagnosed, so there was a lot of advice and a lot of opinions and and um, again, I think that can that can get very loud, and especially when you're already feeling quite fragile and a little bit traumatized, it's difficult to sift through and make those decisions. So I kind of, I kind of gathered together a team around me. So I had my husband and my sister and my best friend, and I I, I made sure that I didn't have too many people involved in the decision making process, but enough that I felt supported. So I would bring my sister and my husband to doctor's appointments with me. Um, they would, my sister would record it, then we would sit back and listen because it was a lot of information, a lot of statistics, a lot of numbers, um, you know, a lot of drugs that I'd never heard of that I wanted to research. Um, and so it helped, I feel, to have, uh, to have that, my sort of support network with me in the doctor's appointments. Right. And then once you um, decided on a course of treatment, a doctor, et cetera, and you were just in the um, sort of weekly grind of getting your treatment how did you what were some of your coping strategies that just helped you through that time some of my coping strategies at the time um, I think were to cocoon myself a little bit I really thought about what it meant to take care of myself and also to allow myself to be taken care of by others uh, I, I it, it sort of shined a light for me on how much I did for other people and um, and how it was harder for me to receive from other people. So I'm very, I'm just, just from the nature of my profession, I'm a natural caretaker and nurturer, I'm a mother, so I'm kind of giving, I feel like I'm giving out all day long in many ways. 
Um, so it was a real lesson in learning how to receive. And that was a coping strategy, just kind of opening, my, opening myself up to that, that vulnerable space of thinking, okay, I'm going to learn how to ask for help and receive it. And when something's offered, um, be grateful for the help that is offered, rather feeling like in order to be strong, I need to get through this and do it all myself and keep doing all the cooking or keep doing all the organizing. So I delegated a lot more than I have ever delegated <laughs> before, which was, uh, was quite momentous for me. Um, and I also really relied on um, just quiet time, you know, me- meditative, reflective time. I spent a lot of time sitting in the garden after chemotherapy between treatments. I'm a writer, so I kept a journal throughout the experience. Um, I really attuned to certain music that felt very relevant in terms of how it made me feel at the time, whether it was uplifting or soothing or supportive. So, I, you know, I would listen to, in fact, at the time, it was the Florence and Machine album. She had just come out with a new album. And I would listen to it um, every time I drove to chemotherapy. So that became like an anthem for me of sorts. And How great. I know. And I think small, and I would sing. That was the other thing. I would sing very loud. I would turn it up very loudly in the car and I would sing at the top of my lungs. I think there was a real balance between allowing myself to feel vulnerable and weak because it does you know it does have that effect on your system you feel exhausted right and at the same time um finding different areas where i could feel strong and empowered and the relationship between those two polarities became important to me are you are you still using those any of those coping strategies um post treatment definitely I would say you know for me the gift of the diagnosis was that I really paid more attention to my own self-care and and I don't plan on ever putting the brakes on that again that's become very necessary rather than an indulgence and I would say prior to being diagnosed I would probably think of that more as an indulgence like doing something nice for myself or really slowing down and now I pay much closer attention to that I know how important it is that's right what did you find most difficult there's so many things about it that are difficult, and so perhaps some of the most difficult things were navigating, um, you know, just generally feelings of fear and anxiety, not just in myself, but in those surrounding me. So, you know, my kids, uh, my friends, my family. Um, I didn't want to be a burden on people. So, you know, I spoke to you about how I was trying to open myself up to receiving help, and yet at the same point, I didn't want to be too much of a worry for everybody, especially at the time, as I said, my mother was living with stage four cancer. So we were already in that space of, of as a family of looking after her and worrying about her. Um, so that was really a very painful and challenging part of the process. I think physically, I felt quite depleted. So that was difficult because I was used to feeling quite strong. I did. I Another thing that helped actually is I went hiking quite a lot, I walked or hiked or anything that was got me outside in nature, outside, you know, away from from the confines of the house or my home. It wasn't always easy to do because of my level of fatigue, but I, you know, I, I pushed myself to do that. So that was helpful. Um, and a hard part for me was staying off the Internet. <laughs> I think that it can be such a slippery slope and we hear about it all the time, but I am a natural investigator and researcher and and I kept wanting to, you know, Google questions and find out about other people's experiences and that can be really helpful, but it can also be really, really harmful and be a bit of a swamp. So It can be so unfiltered and um, really, um, yeah, it can be, it's very startling. Yes, exactly. So it's hard to know how to navigate that. And as a naturally empathic person, also, I found that 
I would, you know, I would lose myself in other people's stories, which wasn't always helpful to my own healing journey. So I, was, I guess, you know, keeping, keeping boundaries in place became important as well, but I wasn't always successful at doing that. Right. Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. And so um, tell me a little bit about the, the, the post-treatment experience, just having to do with thoughts of reoccurrence or um, other medical issues that you're dealing with. Yeah, post-treatment has been an interesting time because I think there's such a relief when the treatment is over and it's a difficult transition. You know, my, uh, my oncologist at the time was, was really very um, wonderful at helping me navigate the transition because you kind of think that you're going to feel this sense of elation, like, oh, it's all over, I can move on now. And it's not always that way. I think post-treatment can be a very tricky landscape to get through because I think post-treatment really is when a lot of anxiety can rise to the surface, when you're no longer in, in the throes of the treatment, which um, is is very connected and hands-on. You kind of feel like you've been thrown out into the wilderness a little bit. Now, I was getting chemo weekly, so I was in my doctor's office once a week for 12 weeks and then you know radiation was daily for four weeks and so as much as it's not a very nice experience to go through you do feel like you're being held by by the people who are looking after you and post-treatment yeah, it's kind of, very focused exactly yeah whereas post-treatment you're a little bit more on your own yes definitely so there was a lot of anxiety there was a lot of like every pain every lump and bump i'm two years on you know i'm still going through that there was a lot of questions like how do you know that this isn't something and what if this is and what could this be and so again i think trust has been a huge a huge emotion to navigate, a huge, you know, area to navigate, trusting myself, trusting my intuition, trusting the doctors that were looking after me. I, I know you have a, a sort of a, a support network in terms of um, you have um, an acupuncturist who you go to and some other people who kind of help you. Yes, I do. That also, yes, that's something that I forgot to mention. That became really important. I decided when I was diagnosed if I was going to be having weekly treatment in terms of the medical treatment that I also wanted to get weekly treatment as a as an antidote really to the clinical atmosphere I wanted to get weekly treatment that would also be nourishing and nurturing and warm and for me that was I found an extraordinary acupuncturist who who I went to weekly um, I also decided to do a weekly yoga class um, and that helped tremendously in terms of like I said just a sort of balance to the to the hard edge of the clinical aspect of treatment right absolutely so um talk a little bit about how this experience has affected some of your relationships your your family friends other people um i remember when i was first diagnosed you know there was such an outpouring of love and support it was really really very moving and quite extraordinary and there was a moment where i thought i wish everybody could get this experience not that i wish everybody could have the experience of being diagnosed with cancer but i wish as a society that we were more open to expressing that level of love and support for one another not just when suddenly there's a crisis um, so that was, yeah, that was quite life-changing actually to be on, again, on the receiving end of, of knowing how valuable I was to other people and how valued I was. Um, so I would say really strengthened my friendships and my relationships. There are a lot of people were very much on the front line with me. Um, and as I mentioned, for me personally, I needed to cocoon myself and people were, were understanding and they waited for me until I was ready. It was very much a process of kind of coming out of hibernation after about six months or so. 
Um, so people were patient and they waited. And I, I have a feeling that it woke other people up as well. I made the decision to stay a little bit connected through social media. I didn't write a huge amount about my experience, but I would post weekly on Instagram. It was almost like a, a kind of call to a gratitude practice for all my friends and family that were following me on, on Instagram. And I think people I think people really stepped up to that. And I have, the feedback that I got was that it really helped people to reflect in their own lives and prioritize and perhaps reassess how things were going for them. Right. What about if we, we draw the circle a little bit closer and, mm-hmm. and look at your, your children and your husband? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a strain. I think it's a huge strain on, on marriages. It's, a, you know, obviously for the spouse, it's a, it's a shock and there's lots of fear and uncertainty and anxiety. So we definitely went through a, a bumpy patch. And I think now that, you know, we're two years on without question, I feel it's really strengthened our relationship. My husband really had to step up in many ways that perhaps he didn't think he was capable of and maybe I didn't know he was capable of, but um, it was it was a test for sure. Um, and I feel like we kind of got through the other side of it. Uh, the kids, without doubt, it's anxiety provoking, but I tried to keep life as normal as possible and to normalize it for them. And so uh, my son said to me at one point, uh, probably months after I finished the treatment, he said to me, well, mom, you never seem too worried about it. So I wasn't too worried about it. And, and I realized that that had, on my part, that had been a success, that part of it had been a success, um, that they hadn't picked up on whatever levels of anxiety I was feeling at different times. It's not always easy to do. So it's a kind of combination of attending to your own anxiety while managing theirs as well. It's not always easy. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what about your relationship to work and to your professional life? Um, well, I did, I did take a long time off. I took a long sabbatical from my work. I'm a therapist and I run groups. So I was in the mid, and I, my groups go for um, eight weeks. So I was in the middle of an eight-week course when I was diagnosed. Um, and I continued that and saw it through to the end and then ended up taking about 18 months off because um, my mother died a few months after I was diagnosed, as you know. So I really just needed some space from my professional life. And that kind of came as a shock because I realized how I really identified with my work and that was very much the fabric of my existence. Um, That was, you know, that's what I did on a daily basis. And so to suddenly, again, it was that being sort of plucked out of my my normal existence and dropped on planet cancer diagnosis, you know, it, it separated me from my work and that was challenging, but um, I've recently gone back and it's been an interesting transition and a wonderful transition, a very fruitful transition, but I felt there was some hesitance about moving back into that space of my sort of previous identity. Um, so how, how, have, uh, how has the experience changed what you're doing in your professional life? Well, I think that it's definitely deepened the experience. Um, it was already a pretty, it was already a pretty deep therapeutic experience. You know, I run, I run therapeutic writing groups for women, but it's definitely, it's deepened my uh, authentic presence. I think, and um, you know, I, I speak a lot about the journey that I've been on and the story, and and the work that I do is encouraging women to tell their story. So I think it's been helpful and encouraging to them. Right. And what about uh, your how has the experience changed you in terms of how you experience life or, or your life priorities? You know, something that I remember that during those first few weeks of diagnosis when I didn't know my treatment course yet, when, when things were very murky and I was interviewing doctors and I was, you know, crying. I would wake up crying. I remember that. I would open my eyes and there would already be tears rolling down my cheeks. 
Um, and I remember just longing to go back to the mundane things in my life. And when I was sitting doing the laundry, you know, when I was loading the washing machine and folding the, the clothes, that suddenly became just like a blissful experience for me. And it's it's funny how you don't realize just the, your regular mundane activities that you just take for granted or, or, or maybe even find aggravating. Suddenly that became almost like a ritual that I longed for because it represented normality. It represented how things used to be. So I use that, I suppose, as an analogy for um, just appreciating everything. Like I really, really have been almost sort of marinating in this in this gratitude which you know I knew cognitively I you know there's been so much research on gratitude practice and it's something that I had read about and I even talked about in my work with the women that I work with but perhaps I wasn't living it myself as authentically as I could be so certainly since the diagnosis um, and the treatment and in the aftermath I do feel I'm so much more grateful for everything even the even the laundry <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Turning to just sort of uh, from laundry to yeah. genetics, I know that there is uh, a strain of breast cancer in your family. Your your mother's mother died of breast cancer. Your mother died from breast cancer. You had breast cancer. Yes. I, I know that you've done some genetic testing and there wasn't anything found, but that doesn't mean there isn't anything there. It just means the science perhaps hasn't caught up with what's going on in your family. So how, how do you think about that and and the, the legacy of breast cancer or cancer in your family? Um, it's a good question, and it's one that obviously I've given a lot of thought and reflection to over this last couple of years. We did have genetic counselling, and while we don't have an identifiable gene in the family, their supposition is is there's some gene that perhaps hasn't been recognised. Um, however, I'm a firm believer in that it's not predestined, and that you know these genes can be turned on and off depending on choices that you make. And you know, I also I really see my own well-being and health as a very holistic practice um so I, I you know I just am trusting the mystery of that and and trusting the healing I think I really I I, I felt that when I was diagnosed that I, if I put the intention out into the world that okay so I'm the third generation to be diagnosed with breast cancer as far as we know but that you know the buck's going to stop here that this I, I I put the intention out into the into the universe as it were I know that sounds very airy fairy but I really felt that on a deep level I put the intention out that I wanted to to heal whatever was being passed through generationally in our family I thought a lot about my grandmother who I never met um, because she died long before I was born um, you know, I was I went through my mother's death while I was in treatment, so uh, it's been a, a very profound experience thinking about this this gene that perhaps is being passed on, but also thinking about how it's not a foregone conclusion and that it doesn't have to keep going and in ways in which it can be stopped. And I think partly for me, it's about now how I intend to to live. Um, I don't want to live in the grips of fear. I don't want my daughter to live in the grips of fear. And so um, I'm just going to put the intention out that it won't be that way. Right. And how have you talked to her about that? Because obviously she knows about the family history. She saw your mother yes. dying. Yes. Well, there's lots of girls in our, you know, I have a daughter and I have two nieces and so, um, and I have two sisters. So there's lots of women in the family who are all, you know, wondering. And we've just been told that we're at slightly higher risk. 
and um, and that they just have to be vigilant and they have to you know they have and I think in a way again it's an opportunity for them to really be in tune with their own bodies especially for the younger women in our family and they will have to start being screened slightly earlier but like I said it's not a foregone conclusion they haven't recognized the gene you know it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be passed on it may or may not so I'm going to encourage them to, to look at all the ways there's so many there's so much research done now about how to prevent um, breast cancer even even with uh, genetic cancers, how, like I said, that the genes can be, you know, they can be turned on or, or flipped off. So, you know, lifestyle plays a huge part in that, how they eat, whether or not they smoke, exercise, uh, you know, stress relate, you know, to try and keep their stress levels as low as possible, which isn't always easy to do, but certainly to embrace yoga and meditation. I think there's so much for young women that they can do to, to try and invite a healthier lifestyle. Right, right. Yeah, and of course, these genes, who knows what they are, may affect men as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. So probably raise the awareness. Yes, and it is a bit, as much science as there is, there's equal amounts of mystery, and I've felt that very, um, I've really tuned into that throughout this process. So to, to be very reverent to both areas, to be, you know, to respect the science and to respect the mystery. Right. So having gone through this experience, uh, I know that you have uh, spoken to some people at the beginning of their cancer journey, mm-hmm. um, but what, what do you tell people who uh, come to you and, and or that you find out about who, who are new to having cancer, or what would you say to somebody who, who is starting in this journey? Um, well, I guess, you know, it's so different. Everybody's diagnosis is so different, so it's very dependent upon what kind of gut diagnosis they've received. But generally, I think, and it, again, it doesn't even have to be for cancer, like any diagnosis that's really going to change the, the course of your health and potentially change the course of your life. Um, I guess my first piece of advice would be to slow down, to not, um, to not, be rushing into any decisions whether it's medical or personal or professional to just take a breath while you kind of get the lay of the land Um, and when you are choosing I I say to people and I have had a lot of people come to me who have just been diagnosed but when you're choosing your medical professionals uh, that you that you that you have the choice it is a choice that's an important word it's a choice and that to to figure out if the if the chemistry is there if you feel a good energetic connection between you and the practitioner i do believe all of those things really contribute to the outcome of the treatment um, and that you shouldn't feel forced to go to one medical professional or another just because they've been recommended or they might be the best i do think bedside manner is hugely important um, and again, to bring a team of people with you at doctor's appointments to gather as much information before you make any decisions. Um, I think those are all pieces of advice I would give. All right. All right. Thank you so much, Rory. Really appreciate talking with you today. Thanks for having me, Diane. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Please subscribe to Real Cancer wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us via Twitter at RealCancerPod or email us with episode ideas at RealCancerPodcast at gmail.com. If you know of someone who'd be a terrific guest, I'd love to know about it. Until next time, this is Diane McDaniel.